If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Romans. We'll be looking at Romans 1, 2, and 3. And as you turn there, at the risk of having you do an intervention and have me checked in for psychological counseling, um, I will just share with you what I've shared before, and that's the fact that I regularly wake up in the morning all distressed, all distraught, I don't know, a few times a year, that I've done something outrageously wrong. I've woken up in the middle of the dream. I've done this horrific thing. I've been caught for it, and now I'm facing the just consequences for this horrific thing that I've done. And the, the, the nature of the horrific thing changes. That makes it even more complicated. Have any of you ever had that kind of dream? Yeah. It's horrible, isn't it? And sometimes you keep thinking about it. It takes time. I need to, to actually realize, it. did it really happen? I'm looking in the mirror, shaving, trying to get ready, thinking, did I do that? And then as the day goes on, I just praise God that I didn't actually do that thing. And I don't know why I dreamt about it, but I did. And I'm just so thankful for God's restraining grace that that's not actually happened in my life. Well, Romans 1, 2, and 3 are sort of like that bad reoccurring dream that you've been caught for doing something horrifically wrong. You're guilty and you are facing the consequences for your wrongdoing. But there's one major difference. It's not a dream. Spiritually speaking, from God's perspective, as He looks at your life and as He looks at my life, He's honest with us and tells us you are a person who is not a person characterized by good. You're characterized by bad. In fact, it says in Romans 3, no one does good. No, not one. It starts on the negative. It ends on the negative, And it is describing our lives. And it is horrifically true. Look with me, if you would, how this section starts in Romans 1.18 to see God's evaluation of the human race in all fairness and all justice, what does he say in Romans 1.18? He says, For the wrath of God, the, the judgment of God, is revealed from heaven. So it is from God and it's from heaven. That's just a redundancy to make sure we see that this is God's evaluation. Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then it just goes from bad to worse there, but he introduces this section that's describing universal, all-encompassing, all-extensive human depravity. And then it ends, just so we're clear, at the end in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, by saying, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed. And that all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We are fairly, justly, under divine fury. Under the fury of divine wrath. It's not a bad dream. It's bad reality. And it's horrible. And we could only wish that we could get ready in the morning to find out that it's not really true. But we see it here 
We see it everywhere. We see this is God's evaluation, and it is a bad evaluation. Before we go any further and talk about the good news, I do have a question for you that sets up the good news a bit. When you sit down and you read Romans 1, 18 and following through chapter 2, through chapter 3, verse 20, is there anything good in there? I mean, do you, do you see anything good in, in the text that is so weighty and so severe? Well, from our perspective, the answer is no. No one does good, no, not even one. It's all bad news. But to appreciate what we're going to see today, I do want to point out something that is good. You might not think it's good, I might not think it's good, but on the other side of the cross, as believers, we can appreciate true good. Look with me, if you would, at chapter 3, verse 5. First glance, as we will read it, it doesn't look very good. It's dealing with objections against God and how could He find us at fault, uh, given who He is. But chapter 3, verse 5 says, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? This is an argument. The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is He? I am speaking in human terms. The Apostle Paul is dialoguing with this objection that's either been posed or he knows will be, oppo- will, will be posed. But let's forget about that for now. We studied that in some detail some time ago. But reread that verse and do notice what it is saying that's positive. Not about us, but about God. I'll just read selectively. Our unrighteousness, that's Romans 1 to 3, demonstrates the righteousness of God. That is not to suggest that God wants us to do the wrong thing, that He makes us do the wrong thing, but it is to make rather clear our unrighteousness, our offense against God does give opportunity for Him to show what is true about Himself, and that is that He is what? He's righteous. And in His world where He says there will be judgment for sin, when He executes judgment through divine wrath, He is showing that He is in fact a God that keeps His word. He is in fact showing that He is a God who is righteous, He is fair, He is just. And from the divine perspective, that's, that's a plus for God. It's no wonder that Psalm 19 verse 9 says, The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. It is no wonder that in the throne room of heaven where the angels are worshiping God, the glimpse that we see in Isaiah chapter 6, they are constantly and incessantly saying, Holy, holy, holy. Therefore, when we read Romans 3.20, if it were the final verse in the final chapter of the story, It would be saying something good about God. God is righteous. And I don't know about you, but I am so thankful and so glad that Romans 3.20, although it would have God as a righteous God and worthy to be praised by all the angels who are holy, I'm so glad that Romans 3.20 is in the end of the story. Grace upon grace upon grace that God isn't only righteous. 
and that he is loving and kind and compassionate and it doesn't end in 320 but now we're ready to read 321 thank god for romans 321 read with me there if you would but now In the flow of things, but now, given the coming and the death and the cross work of Jesus, but now, apart from the law, and may I insert there for interpretive purposes in light of the flow, but now, in light of Christ's coming, apart from the law, which rightly and justly shows the guiltiness of sinners and therefore the righteousness of God, but now, apart from the law, The righteousness of God has been manifested. And that's why Leon Morris says this is the best paragraph in the whole Bible. God's righteousness has been shown in a different way. In a way that is beneficial to us unique and distinct and as he says apart from the law and we're going to study this section today 21 to 26 and we'll look at seven ways that the righteousness of God is manifested in Jesus and I point to the cross because Jesus in all that he's done and all that he is seven ways that the righteousness of God is manifested is made clear and is by the way for our benefit And it will, once again, as all that we look at does, it will cause us to want to worship Jesus Christ like we haven't worshipped Him before. It will cause us to see Him as He truly is. It will cause us to see salvation as far richer than we ever even imagined. Seven ways that the righteousness of God is manifested in Jesus. Some will be more weighty than others. And perhaps the most weighty is the seventh. So I will do all that I can with God's help to get us to number seven. The first way that the righteousness of God is manifested in Jesus is introductory, but it is according to the law and the prophets. It is according to the law and the prophets. Do notice what it says in verse 21 again where it starts with, but now... There's something new. There's something unique. There has been, there, there's been something more revealed, but now. And then at the end of verse 21, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Yes, there has been this dramatical, dramatic, dramatical, that's a cool word. There has been this dramatic and radical, thus dramatical. <laughs> there has been this dramatical shift. Yes, God has shown Himself to be righteous and that is so clear in His law. But we have seen something new, something unique, something that has come and that something is the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. But amidst all of its newness, and new it is, it is not plan B that somehow God thought up on the fly. This is not something that had never been spoken of before. This isn't somehow a reworking of things. This isn't revisionary. This isn't a trend. That's why he says what he says by way of introduction in verse 21, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. This is rooted in the Old Testament. This is part of the greater plan in the infinite wisdom of God. This is why Jesus would say things like, and I quote Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. This is why Jesus said what he said in John chapter 5, verse 39, referring to the Scriptures, he said, these that testify about me. And he's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the Law and the Prophets. So even though it's by way of introduction, let's have it locked in our minds that this is, yes, but now new truth rooted in eternal, infinite Scripture and the wisdom of God. Well, let's move on now to what's really getting uh, our attention or should be the second way the righteousness of God is manifested in Jesus. It's manifested through faith in Jesus Christ. It is manifested through faith. Look at verse 22 then, where it says, even, or that is, that, uh, let me explain. In other words, here's what I'm getting at. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Just encourage you to gaze at it. Right there. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God, which for all intents and purposes was against us. The righteousness of God, which is something that we would not consider our friend. What Martin Luther would say, I hate the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God, which would stand opposed to us, is here for us, for our benefit. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is what it's all about. This is Christianity. This, this is the very sum and substance. This is the essence of what we're talking about here. God's righteousness is against us, and rightfully so. And now, what we so desperately need, which is the righteousness of God, so that we can then have a right relationship with Him, is now for us. And how is it for us? It is for us through Christ and through faith in, in, in what He has done on our behalf as the righteous one. This is good news. This is capital G good news. This is the good news. This is, this is gospel news. Here it is, right here in front of us. This is, this, is, this is why I would be so much in agreement with the Protestant reformers who would say it is sola fide. It is faith alone, not because faith is an object in and of itself. And you know what? You just got to have faith in faith. No, it's because of, it is connected to the perfect work of Christ, including His perfect life. And faith alone would be, because of Christ and all that He's accomplished in His sufficient work, we trust in Him, we depend upon Him. That's faith, by the way. Faith, not, not like according to our culture, is not subjective religious preference. Right? That's what we mean by faith in our culture. It's not what Romans means by faith. Faith is not subjective religious preference. Faith is the means of appropriating, the means of personalizing. Jesus does this great and magnificent work having obeyed God perfectly in our 
place and then having absorbed the wrath of God perfectly in our place, then uh, having risen from the dead on our behalf perfectly as well. How do we make it ours? How do we gain His righteousness? Well, we, we trust in Him. We depend upon Him. And this is why I'm so fond of saying faith is only as good as its object. So when we say faith alone, we say sola fide. We say this is where it's at for us. The righteousness of God, that is Christ's righteousness, through faith is how we receive it, how we gain benefit from it. Does that make sense? I want so badly for it to make sense. This, this is ABCs of Christianity. But it also becomes the most profound thing imaginable in Christianity. Christ's righteousness was perfect. We need perfect righteousness to be right with God and not face His righteous wrath. So we gain benefit from what He's done by believing in Him. For the sake of time, I won't ask you to turn there, but if you just jot down Philippians chapter 3, we could look at a lot of different passages, whether it be Galatians or Romans or Philippians or Matthew or Mark or Luke or John or Revelation or, quite frankly, anything in between. But just listen to Philippians 3. It's a great one. It's even worthy of writing in your margin if you dare do so. Trust me, God won't strike you dead. I've done it a lot of times. Um, (laughs) You don't have the original autographer in your hands, okay? The original manuscript. Listen to Philippians chapter 3. Paul was so self-righteous and did so many things. He says in verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, religious good works that really weren't good, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, More than that I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them all but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And verse 9 is really what I wanted to read for you. And may be found in Him that is united with with him and may be found in him get this not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law but that which is through faith a righteousness which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith we need perfect righteousness and there's only one place to get it and it is from God it is his righteousness and how do we receive God's righteousness so we can be in a right relationship with God we trust in Jesus the righteous one. Isn't it good? It is the best of the best of the best of the best. This is what I want to talk about every opportunity I get to talk about it. And you appreciate it too, no doubt, if you have come to even come close to appreciating Romans 1.18 to Romans 3.20. This is everything to us. Let's move to a third way the righteousness of God is manifested in Jesus as if we really need to move on. Number three, it's manifested, this one can be done rather quickly, without distinction. It's it's done without distinction. Look at verse 22 toward the end where it says, For all, I'll emphasize that because it's the word that emphasizes no distinction, for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We use that verse a lot in our evangelism and explaining the gospel. And we should. It's good. It's true. It's right. But it's interesting, the original context that it comes in is making the point that salvation is 
not limited to Jewish people. It's not limited to any kind of people group. Why? Because since the logic is everyone has sinned, so universal problem, universal solution. So it's without distinction. This is why we would read things like in John 4, 42, that Jesus is the Savior of the what? He's the Savior of the world. Used so often in the sense of, we're not just limiting this to Jews. Yes, He's the Jewish Messiah, but we're talking about Savior of Jews and Gentiles. That's how great a Savior He is. He's the Savior of the human race. He became one of us. Let's move on to a fourth way the righteousness of God is manifested in Jesus, and that is in free justification. In free justification. Now, it's going to say grace, but I just wanted to say free so we get it clear that when we talk about grace, your, your mental association should be grace equal sign free. Not grace equal sign something I do associated with the church. Too many times in our particular religious culture, when we hear grace, we think something we do. It's totally foreign to the Bible. Grace is not something the church gives you to do. It's not grace. Grace is free. It's gift. It's given to you. And so if you don't have that kind of mental baggage, forget about what I said, but let's have it clear. It's free justification. Look at verse 24. Being justified as a gift, in case we're not clear on that, by His grace. Now, to appreciate that, I'm justified before God as a gift by His grace. To appreciate that, go once again to Romans 1.18. And I want you to key in, I want you to zero in on one word in Romans 1.18. It comes up twice. And then the same word in Romans 1.29. And it's going to help you to appreciate verse 24 of chapter 3. He says, justified as a gift by His grace. Well, that's significant in light of 118 where it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Here's the key word I want you to zero in on. And unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Unrighteousness, unrighteousness. That's the opposite extreme of justified. That's the opposite extreme of justification. They come from the same basic word. So if we're, we're justified, declared righteous by His grace as a gift... That must be by a gift because what I learned earlier is I'm unrighteous and unrighteous. And then chapter 1, verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness. Uh, I'm extensively unrighteous. I mean, that, that's, that's Pat Abendroth's life verse. Romans 1, 29, it's your life verse too. Filled with unrighteousness. Filled with unrighteousness. Filled with unrighteousness. That's you. God loves you enough to tell you that's who you are. Smile. Filled with unrighteousness. Filled with unrighteousness. <sighs> then we go to chapter 3, verse 24. Being justified, declared righteous with perfect righteousness as a gift by His grace. Oh, how could it be better than that? I am unrighteous and I'm justified, declared righteous as a gift. And you know what? It must be by a gift. 
Because we've established in Romans 1.18 to Romans 3.20, there's nothing we could ever do to actually show righteousness before God. It has to be by a gift. Righteousness is so foreign to me that it says in Romans 1.29, I'm filled with all unrighteousness. So for me to get righteousness is for me to be given righteousness. Because I ain't got it in me. It can't be. John Stott says, It is certain that we did not take the initiative. For we were sinful, guilty, and condemned, helpless, and hopeless. And just turn to Romans 4 or 5 just to see that this is everywhere in Romans, but we're just getting a little sampling today. In Romans 4 or 5 it says, But to the one who does not work, I wrote in my notes, Grace! Exclamation point! but believes or has faith or depends in Him or upon Him who, what? Justifies the ungodly. I underline that. Who justifies, declares righteous, the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. I can't wait to get to that in the days ahead. So glad you joined me for my little personal worship service I call preaching. It, it doesn't get any better than this. You know, if, if this isn't causing you to, to be moved, nothing will. Nothing in the Bible will. This is just as good as it possibly gets filled with unrighteousness, declared righteous. That's why we sing to God. That's why we praise God. That's why we live for God. That's why we die for God because He's given us all of this and we're not busy trying to earn it. We're simply saying, thank you for all that you've done for me. Just a couple of qualifiers before we move on. Since we're talking about justification, and by the way, we're going to talk about it a lot so I don't feel too bad about trying to keep things moving because we're going to get it in chapter 4, we're going to get it in chapter 5. But just a couple of qualifiers. When you hear justification, it does not mean just as if I never sinned. Okay? Bless your heart. If you've been a Sunday school teacher, thank you for serving. Please repent of telling that to my children. It's a great little ditty. But it's not true. Just as if I never sinned. Justification. Man, it's good. It's not really good. It's not really right. Because justification is borrowed from the courtroom and it is a forensic, it is a legal declaration of righteousness. If Pat is just as if he never sinned, at best I have zero. And justification is not zero. Justification is God based upon the righteous works of Jesus, not zero, declare sinners like Pat righteous, not zero, through faith. 
I have Christ's righteousness in my spiritual bank account. That's the verbiage of Romans 4. And so it is way, 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 way underselling to say just as if I never sinned. I need something more than that to get into heaven, by the way. I need active righteousness. I need God's righteousness. Or should I say positive righteousness? Not just zero. So let's, again, jump in the deep end of the pool if that's what you think this is. And let's swim in the deep end because that's where the deep praise is going to come from. That's where a right understanding of God is going to come from. That's where a right understanding of Christ is going to come from. And we do want to understand Him rightly and know that what, what we have. Furthermore, what it is not, it is not unfair. Not too many people are asking that question. But again, if you're just trying to think biblically, it could come up in your mind. In fact, I actually think it should come up in your mind that God would declare Pat a sinner. Second hour, my wife will be here. She'll say, Amen. That God would declare Pat a sinner righteous even though Pat is not. Eh, that's, that's not just. That, 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 that's, that's not right. In a sense, I think you should be thinking that. Because of what it says, for example, in Proverbs. You could just write down Proverbs 17.15. Listen to Proverbs 17.15 that says, He who justifies the wicked, yours truly, he who justifies God, and, well, he who justifies the wicked, and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Okay, have that in your mind. And then have the passage I think I just read in your mind that says in Romans 4, 5, Him who justifies the ungodly. Him who justifies the ungodly, Romans 4, 5, and then I'm going to put my finger on Proverbs 17, 15, He who justifies the wicked. It's saying the same thing. That's an abomination to God, and God does that. So here's the, the, the apparent dilemma. How in the world can God say in His holy book in Proverbs that if you justify the wicked, you are an abomination, and then God does it? One word answer. And the giant hint is hanging on the wall behind me. It's the cross. God would be wrong and unrighteous to declare Pat righteous because Pat is not righteous if it weren't for the substitutionary life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus truly and genuinely earned righteousness for me and He truly and genuinely experienced the just condemning fury of divine wrath for me and rose again from the dead for me. And so, as we will peek ahead a little bit, we'll get there in just a little while, we're going to see at the end of our study today, He can be, He can be legitimately the just and the justifier. And there's no moral compromise. And He can maintain the justice and He can ma maintain His gracious justifying work. It's so good on so many levels. It's so amazing on so many levels. Okay, if God does this, on what ground, on what basis does He do this? And we've already talked about it, but let's move on to number 
5. A fifth way the righteousness of God is manifested in Jesus is through redemption in Christ. Through redemption. Now, he's building argument upon argument. This is not something that really comes to us in a list of seven. But if we just see that they all relate together and one builds upon another, builds upon another, builds upon another, I think it's legitimate to divide them out for the sake of teaching, study. Now, just to prepare you, before we look at verse 24b, let's call it, I just remind you of chapter 3, verse 9. At the very end of 3.9 it says, both Jews and Greeks are all under, emphasizing that, sin. It's a bondage word. It's a slavery description. You know, because of sin, we are all under this, this tyrant called sin. We're enslaved to sin. We'll see that in Romans chapter 6. We are all under sin. We are all enslaved to sin. And that gets us ready for redemption. Verse 24b, let's call it, through, we've got justification, and then we have here in verse 24, through the redemption. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. I said it couldn't get any better, but it just keeps getting better. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Jesus, the great liberator. Jesus, the great redeemer. Yeah, you are a slave. You're a slave to sin. You're in the shackles. You're under sin. You're under its tutelage. You're under its sovereignty. So am I. Everyone is, both Jews and Greeks. And so we have Jesus coming here and based upon His perfect work on the cross, He is the great liberator. He is the great redeemer. And the way He can justify us and declare us righteous and through faith and by grace and all of that is not because He just decides to do so and He just came up with it one day. It's because He actually did the work, the work of redemption, the work of buying us, buying us out of slavery just as God redeemed Israel on multiple occasions. Just as, if you want to borrow it from the the ancient culture, just as the slave is there and someone would come and buy them out of the slave market and give them liberation and free them, that's what Jesus does. He loves us. He cares about us. He wants us as His own. And He redeems us. What a great image. You might think, well, I don't like to think of myself as a slave. That's not very sophisticated. In fact, I don't even think that word should be used in relationship to Christianity. There are people who think like that. What's up with that? In a way, one way or another, it's just undermining what Jesus actually did. I got news for you. His work is a redeeming work. We are enslaved. Why would I want to complain about that? I've been rescued. How many of you have ever been rescued from anything? Well, we all would say yes in one way or another, right? Being rescued is a pretty good deal. You know, you're thankful and saying, oh, thank you so much, you know, can I, can I help you out? What can I do to ever, what can I ever do to repay you? Uh, depending upon the severity of what we've been rescued from, and, and you're so thankful, you know. 
you know, what are you doing ahead of time? You're waving, hey, you know, we need some help over here. And somebody comes and they rescue you and they help you and you say thank you and all the rest. And it's great. I like to be rescued. Who doesn't? It's part of the nature of the problem and the solution. But think with me about this one. When it comes to Christ redeeming us, it's a little bit different, which makes it a whole lot better because I'm not and you're not saying, Jesus! You're righteous and I need your righteousness. Please come here and live for me and die for me and rise from the dead for me. Help! We're not going over here! Over here! In light of what the Scripture would teach us, in light of Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If I'm yelling anything, I'm yelling blasphemy against His name and I'm not waving my hand, I'm waving the finger. Right? Yeah. While we were yet sinners... Why we were still His enemy. Why we are still opposed to Him. He comes here. He comes here and redeems us. This is better than any rescuing we've ever experienced. It's on a totally different level altogether. Because we don't deserve to be rescued. We don't want to be rescued. We're in enemy status. This is crazy. This is so good. Unworthy, wretched, vile, disgusting, enemies of Jesus. <laughs> he dies for us. You tell me which one elicits some more passionate, more fervent praise. I'm a good guy. Come over here, please. Throw me the life raft. I'll grab it. Number one, it's not biblical. Number two, it's the same old scenario. Next verse, we'll get to heaven and do high fives. It's not the case. It's not the case at all. We'll get to heaven and join the rest of the people who are there who have had a good refinement of their theology and they say, what? Worthy is the Lamb! Worthy is the Lamb who was slain! It's all about Him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's just absolutely awesome. I liked what James White said when he, he talked about this issue and he said, grace is not unmerited favor. Take some guts to go against what every theologian you respect says. But I think every one of those theologians would actually agree with him when he says it's not unmerited favor because that assumes that we've done nothing. It's demerited favor, which assumes that we've done something all right. We've offended him. And he gives us the gift anyway. Let's move on. A sixth way that the righteousness of God is manifested in Jesus is through propitiation. Propitiation. P-R-O-P, boys and girls. I-T, propit. Propit. I-A-T-I-O-N. Through propitiation in Christ. It's a biblical word, so it's worth learning. Look at verse 25. 
whom, talking about Jesus, God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. If you have an NIV, it says, a sacrifice of atonement. I'm running out of energy. I've just been too excited about all this stuff. And I'm standing here going, man, it's not like all of a sudden it took a downturn and this is a boring section. Somebody give me a dot Mountain Dew or something. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't slow down at all. It's just, it just keeps adding grace upon grace and good upon good and great upon great. It's not going anywhere downhill. Propitiation? Perfect satisfaction? That's what essentially it means. He, he satisfies the just wrath of God on our behalf. God is angry and He has every right to be angry. We're under His wrath, Romans 1.18, all the way to 3.20. And it is a severe wrath, and it is a fair wrath, and it is a just wrath. And God has every right to blow you away in hell forever. And I guarantee you, the angels would worship God more incessantly, more fervently for it. Because He's just, and He's only doing the just, the fair thing. And he doesn't. He has a son come. Which causes the angels, if I could paraphrase rather loosely, First Peter, which causes the angels to scratch their heads in absolutely dumbfounded mystery. They're like, huh? What we would expect from you, God, is to give those people what they deserve, what you did to the other portion of the angelic race when they sinned, and that is to throw them out of heaven and guarantee the lake of fire forever because they deserve it and you are a righteous God. And the angels, they think about redemption, they think about propitiation, they think about salvation, and these are things in which they long to look. They're absolutely amazed that God would do this. Propitiation. That when Jesus died on the cross, He is propitiating, He is satisfying the just wrath of God. And it's personal because all of this is tied to through faith. This is for me, this is for sinners, this is personal. Some people really don't like this idea of propitiation because haven't we moved beyond that? You know, a God who's angry. So they want to translate it different ways or not talk about it. Newsflash! God is God! He made you in His image and now it's corrupted and perverted as a result of the fall. You don't make Him in your image according to your liking. Newsflash, God is not to be domesticated. Well, to me, God is not the kind of God that would need to be propitiated. Now we're back to Romans 1. You know what? That was who God was to you and to me. And then by His grace, we see this is who He really is. He really is angry. He really is wrathful. 
And what does He do? He's also loving and kind and gracious. And so, He maintains both at the same time and He has His Son come. And He has His Son absorb His wrath. Propitiate, satisfy His judgment for us. This is gospel news. This is good news. This is great news. And this is who God is and this is what God has done. First John 4.10 says, In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Don't shy away from these realities. Own these realities. Like I said earlier, jump in the deep end of the pool and your praise will be deep. Your living will be deep. It will be strong. It will be God-centered, Christ-glorifying, Christ-honoring. Let's move on, finally. Number seven, seventh way, the righteousness of God is manifested in Jesus as the ultimate demonstration of righteousness. The ultimate demonstration of righteousness. The cross. The ultimate demonstration of righteousness. This deserves five stars, okay? Out of five. Maybe I'm thinking that way because we don't ever talk about it. I'll be honest. We don't usually think of the cross in these terms. So far what we've been seeing is very personal. So far what we've been seeing has to do with us, how we've been redeemed and how our sin has been dealt with because Christ propitiated the wrath of God and and we're justified and we're justified freely by His grace and we're justified and how are we justified? How is it made applicable to us? It's through faith. So far what He's been talking about has to do with us and it's personal and it's wonderful and it's fabulous and we should be praising Him as a result of it. And now He goes cosmic on us. Bigger picture. Bigger picture of the cross. The ultimate demonstration of righteousness. Look at verse 25b where it says, This was, in reference to the crucifixion, this was to demonstrate His righteousness. The cross. When you see the cross, yes, absolutely, think of the love of God which is grand. I've even read texts that talk about it as the ultimate act of love. Absolutely. When you look at the cross, think about mercy, think about grace, think about long-suffering. But please, please, in light of what the text says here in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, Don't ever, ever, ever think about the cross without forgetting that it is the demonstration of the righteousness of God. The ultimate. Jesus is on the cross as... The unjust, even though he was just, Second Corinthians 5. And he is there as the unjust, as the sinner on the cross, even though he was not. And God unleashes, if you will, the furies of hell against his very own son. And it is the demonstration of the righteousness of God. 
you know, read your Old Testament and you say, wow, based upon that law, we see God dealing with sin and sinners and man, another emphasis on the righteousness of God. Well, yet again, we see the righteousness of God on display. He is judging, and He's judging severely at times. And you're like, whoa, God of the Old Testament, man, He's righteous. Um, you ain't seen nothing until you get to Calvary. What happens at Calvary on the cross puts all of that other righteousness, though it is righteous and good and fair and just, And puts it on such a lesser plane. The demonstration of the righteousness of God is Calvary. Without question it is. Verse 25 again. This was to demonstrate His righteousness. And it's even more impressive than we might even think. Because keep reading in verse 25. Because in the forbearance of God, now we're looking to the Old Testament, no doubt, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over. You could translate that. He suspended. He postponed. Not forgave. He passed over the sins previously committed. You think the cross is amazing? Well, don't forget the reason it is so intense, the reason the fury is so radical and so strong is because anybody who quote-unquote got a pass, anybody who was forgiven in the Old Testament, anyone who who is in heaven now from the other side of Calvary is there because of the cross is there because of what He would do there. Because in the past, he, he had passed over those sins previously committed. He had suspended His judgment. And so when Jesus comes to die on the cross, just like He is there dying for our sins, which would be yet in the future, He's dying for their sins, which were yet in the past. And thus, it is the demonstration of the righteousness of God. It is the, the ultimate demonstration. We saw a glimpse in the Old Testament of righteousness, and we see the fullness of it on Calvary. And then in verse 26... Or it says, for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time. He passed over it so that He could unleash it on a Son for redemption. How good is God? How great is God? How praiseworthy is God? How wise is God? How deep is the pool? Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology says God had not simply forgiven sin and forgotten about the punishment in generations past. And by the way, if He had, He would be unjust. He had forgiven sins and stored up His righteous anger against those sins. But at the cross, the fury of all that stored up wrath against sin was unleashed against God's own Son. And then the high point, look with me at your text in Romans chapter 3, verse 26, so that, here's why, ultimately, He would be, God would be just, righteous that is, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
Ta-da! There it is! There's the high point! You can't have justification. You can't have uh, being just in God's eyes at the expense of His righteousness. Or God would not be righteous and He wouldn't be just and He wouldn't be God and He would be a liar and so on and so forth. But what we have is this amazing logic. You don't have to take this on faith. Which too many times is shut your brain off because it doesn't make sense anyway. Don't take this on faith. It's clear. God is just. And God is the justifier. And that's what makes all the sense in the world in light of Old Testament, New Testament, cross sinners like us. And that's what causes me to say, yeah! He's everything. Last passage. Look at it with me if you would. Back in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Remember, this is the introduction to the book. And now we can appreciate it because we get it. Romans 1.17 says, this was the preview. This is, where, this is what we saw today. For in it, the righteousness of the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That is, it's only by faith. As it is written... Now look to your margin because it has a better translation, a more literal translation. He who is righteous by faith shall live. Because of the cross. And it makes sense. And God is not a liar and He's not unjust. And He's great. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for the most amazing awesome reality of Calvary, your great and amazing Son, your infinite wisdom. It is more than we can get our minds around. But it is absolutely the greatest thing we could ever know. God, may we think long about these things. May we meditate upon these great realities so that they would really provide the sustenance of our life. May we be quick to talk to others about this great Savior, this great Jesus. And you, this great God who is just, yes, and the justifier by grace through faith, yes. In Jesus' name, amen.